0: Hey friends, Paul here. We're in the middle of this really long series, but important series. I hope you're finding it to be important to exploring the problem of evil and suffering. And we've gotten pretty far into the series. We're about eight parts in, and over the last few parts, we've been pretty dense in the, the philosophy and theology department here, which is good. It's important to do that important for us to be able to try to have a narrative framework for making sense of suffering, to make sense of evil, and how to respond to it in the world. It's really important that we do that because we have a narrative by default. One thing I want to make sure that we do as we go throughout this process of growing and discovering and re-examining what we believe is to not just have this remain in the intellectual domain. You know, even in philosophy and As people discuss the problem of evil and ruminate on it, it's very common for that problem to be divided into two categories. You have the intellectual problem of evil, which is much of what we've done over the last few episodes, but then you also have the emotional problem of evil, which is really the, the facet of the problem of evil that we most often deal with when we have neighbors friends family members people we go to church with that experience horrific pain trauma etc it's what pastors most likely have to deal with most frequently in their workplaces counselors teachers you know when you have a student or you know if you're a, a counselor or a therapist someone in your office you're dealing with it on the emotional level you're not necessarily laying out for them a a new philosophical framework for, to help them reframe it. Hopefully, as we talked about, I think we've talked about at the very get-go, hopefully that sort of thing happens on the front side. It's not very effective to be reassessing your entire worldview, things you believe, et cetera, when you're in the middle of a traumatic experience or when you're um, in the middle of grieving. So in today's episode, we're I'm really excited to have on today's program someone that's going to help us Uh, not make this merely an abstract discussion of ideas, but to put flesh and bone in a face to the real experience of people's um, suffering and and, and to the real experiences of people in some of the most war-torn places on planet Earth. My guest today is Jen Meyerson. Jen Meyerson is the Director of Relief for Preemptive Love Before that, she was a a program consultant for Medical Teams International, spending time in Bangladesh. Before that, she worked for the United Nations um, for several years. She's been all over the globe. She spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East. And with the recent events that have been happening, tensions rising between the United States, Iran, and Iraq, I thought it'd be especially fitting to have. Um, Jen on the program today to talk with her about her experiences to maybe help have her help us understand a little bit more of what's happening in that region of the world, and in particular, to really help us figure out how in the world we're supposed to respond. Uh, How can we respond? Is there anything that we can do about it? Sometimes these situations seem so hopeless for those of us that are not world leaders or politicians and it's like, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do to keep this stuff from happening? Or when it's happened, what can we do to bring relief? What can we do to deal with the real existential problems of evil and suffering in the world? So I'm really excited to have Jen here. And yes, by the way, she is my wife's sister. So we've had many conversations. We often get to hear incredible stories from Jen when she's in town, those limited times she's in town. So I'm excited to talk to Jen today. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Jen Meyerson. Well, Jen, thanks for doing this. Um, We've been talking about it at family gatherings probably for a little while. And um, I think we even nailed this down before stuff really hit the fan week in Iraq. Um, And so I think... You know, you've, you're doing, I mean, you're flying out to Texas tomorrow, but, and you're going to be, and you've done stuff at the border and in Central America. You, you know, so the Middle East is not the only area of focus for you in your current position as director of relief for preemptive love. But I think it's an area that's on a lot of people's minds that are trying to figure out what to do, what to, how to make sense of it. It seems so difficult to even be able to trust news headlines, everything seems so politicized. You know, and I'm not expecting you to give us a history lesson or anything like that, but I think it'd be really interesting to kind of get into the real. Before we get into the real stories of like real human people made in the image of God living in Iraq and Syria and even Iran, even though you, I mean, you're not actually you're in Iran, right? No, no. Um, not yet, at least. Yeah, not <laughs> not not yet. To maybe just help people understand from. From your perspective, as someone who's worked extensively in the Middle East, s- help them maybe understand maybe some of the the macro story. Like, <laughs> you know, the tensions this week have reached a boiling point, possibly. And I don't know; you might have a different opinion than me than this, like, because you actually have been there. But someone who's just, you know, my undergrad was in history. This seems like it's possibly the most tense time since the 70s between the United States and Iran, from your perspective, maybe you could just tell people a little little bit of the backstory. I mean, we don't necessarily have to go all the way back to 1950 when there's a CIA coup and then the Islamic revolution. We don't have to necessarily do all of that. But, you know, what would have been some of the things that have led to this boiling point in the region from your perspective? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, just to add a little plug here, because I do think uh, as Americans and as Christians, it is actually really important to learn about the Middle East. Um, It is in the Bible. It starts with the birth of Jesus actually mentions the country of Syria in a lot of translations. So even though it is super complex and it is super confusing, and that's okay, I would just challenge people to maybe lean into that overwhelmingness because our actions as we vote how we pray as Christians um our our how we read the bible is all intertwined with this region that we call the middle east and so although it is really big and broad and messy um it doesn't necessarily mean like you have to get a bachelor's in history you right. know but i do think that it is important to lean into it and even listening to this is maybe that way of leaning that's in that's the goal <laughs> um, but just trying to maybe broaden our perspective and understanding of a region that is very important to us, even though we may not see its ramifications here in Minneapolis or here in other places in Mm -hmm. the States. And so um, for me, I learned a lot of my history through listening to people's stories um, in Iraq and and other people who are maybe part of the military. And that's kind of how I gathered my understanding and Although it, you can date back quite far, um, I think for me, a, a big piece in understanding Middle Eastern politics is actually understanding the relationship between Saudi and Iran.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I know that you mentioned a little bit um, of it, but America kind of created an allyship with Saudi in the early 1900s. I believe it was 1939, if I'm correct. Um, and that's when Saudi discovered oil. And so we we kind of, that's when our I don't know if friendship is the right word, but that's when our uh, alliance was formed with Saudi. And during that same time, Iran also discovered oil, but they were being infiltrated by external um, governance, like uh, Russia and the Brits both actually um, came into Iran twice between the 1800s and the 1900s. And so um, from that, you then have this kind of com- competing force. And that's when the the U S kind of came in and supported the coup, like you mentioned mm-hmm. in Iran. And um, they switched from a prime minister over to a monarchy where um, his name was Shah. And mm-hmm. he really transformed Iran into being a Westernized, um, some would say a secular mm-hmm. type of a nation. Um, so, it uh, with with this moving into a secular nation, there was a retaliation against the the monarch Shah um, of Iranians who were like, we don't want this. This is not this is not the way. And so they kind of revolted against the government, and that is when what we call the Iranian revolution. Mm-hmm. Some people call it the Islamic uh, war. Mm-hmm. Kind of began, and it was this idea of the people actually have some power to overtake government. And um, Saudi became scared because they didn't want that to happen in their own in their own um, region, and so Saudi then kind of strengthened relationships with the United States as this whole Iranian revolution was was coming about. Iraq, who is geographically positioned kind of in the middle, of it borders Iran and then it's just south is is Saudi. Um, had Saddam Hussein, who was the, the leader of it at the time. And Saddam is like, I don't want Iran um, bringing in their revolution because Iran was trying to export this idea of a revolution to other right, countries, right. which we saw in Libya and right. Afghanistan. Yeah. And so they um, Iraq was trying to prevent that type of ideology of people can rise up and take over the government. And so um, Iraq started to fight against Iran, and it actually... Or sorry, yeah, Iraq started to fight against Iran, and they actually invaded Iran. Um, but Iran was very powerful, and they started to win. So Saudi got nervous that Iraq was losing, and so Saudi then backs um, backs Iraq during mm-hmm. this war.
0: And that this is in so the CIA coup is in the fifties, correct? Uh, the Islamic Revolution in Iran begins does it begin in the late sixties, but say it's the seventies. It's yep. the seventies. We have the. Tehran hostage crisis, right? Mm-hmm. The oil embargo that happened in Jimmy Carter's administration. So now we're in like the early 80s, right? Yep. So Saddam, for those of you that are like my age, I'm 36. You know, when I was a kid, the first war that I can remember was the Gulf War, but we're not quite to the Gulf War yet, right? We're in the early 80s. We've got Saddam getting backed by the Saudi and the Saudis are have a vested interest in this idea not causing uh, a revolution mm-hmm. in their kingdom, right? And with our allegiances, we we end up back, which is really weird. A lot of people don't know this, that maybe have just grown up and the first war they remember is, like, the first war I remember as a kid is the Persian Gulf War. And it's yeah. like, well, Saddam's the bad guy, but this is so complex, right? It's It's hard to even say, like, bad guys and good guys, right? Yeah. Saddam is somebody that we had um, provided uh, aid to, right, in yeah. the Iran, Iran-Iraq War. So we're in the early '80s, right, yep. or early to mid '80s.
1: Yeah, and I think a key thing to to note during this time is Saudi has um, two holy sites within its country, Medina and Mecca, and so they always kind of claimed to be the the Muslim power, the Islamic state. Um, during this time of the revolution, Iran also claimed that they were the the head of Islam, that they were the Islamic state. Mm. And um, there was a division. It, w- it wasn't necessarily a war, but there, w- there was a division between the Sunni and the Shi'i, which are two different denominations, I guess you could say. Right. And
0: it, this goes all the way back to almost the beginning of Islam that this division has happened after Muhammad died, right? Correct. This goes all the way back to who's the rightful successor?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know. And, um, but during this time, it was very obvious that Saudi had more Sunnis and Iran had more Shia. And so in Iraq, when, um, let's just, you know, fast forward 15 years to to 2003, when uh, America invades Iraq, and we take out Saddam. Neither Saudi or or Iran was really thrilled about this idea Hmm. because Iraq kind of served as a buffer between the two countries. And I think another word that's kind of floating around the news that is good to note is this concept of a proxy war. And this is considered a proxy war when you have two different countries who are fighting on someone else's land, in essence. I mean, it goes much more detailed, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of the brief definition of a proxy war. And so here Iraq is kind of stuck in the middle and Saudi and Iran don't want to fight each other. So therefore a proxy war means that they'll just bring it to a different nation. And so 2003, we, uh, the U S goes and they, they, they take out Saddam and the U S really struggled to find another person to put in place in Saddam, in, in place of Saddam. And so now we have a, a, there's no government in Iraq and because of that, militia groups started to rise up, both Shia and Sunni, some extremists um, from both. Um, you know, that's that's kind of where ISIS came from and, and those type of extremists. And so uh, Saudi and Iran always, in order to control each other, they always kind of choose opposite teams to support. Mm. And since Saudi was Sunni, they supported the Sunni militias in Iraq, and since uh, Iran was more Shia; they supported the the Shia, and this is truly the tension that still exists today. Um, we, when um, fast forward a few more years to 2011, where Arab Spring, and it was the same concept of kind of like the Iranian Revolution, where you have the people trying to overtake the government. We saw it in Libya. We saw it. We saw it in many places because
0: these governments are seen as too secular. Is that it can be because the
1: governments are seen as too secular. In Iran's case, it was uh, that was part of it, but it was also um, Shah had used secret police and was just treating the people poorly. So it could be a, a accumulation of many factors. Mm. That um, same with in Egypt, there was kind of more of this. We don't like how we're being treated, so right. therefore we're going to rise. Libya up.
0: as well, yeah, right? Libya
1: as well. And so during Arab Spring, you see throughout the Middle East as well as in North Africa this. Um, I don't know if ideology is the right word, but this notion of the people actually have power to take over the government and make a new way. And that was really scary, again, for Saudi, because Saudi's like, we don't want that happening in our own country. And so in Syria, you see the same thing. You see um, Iran is supporting Assad and is supporting Shiite-type militias, whereas Saudi doesn't want Iran to have any form of control over the Middle East because there's this there's this power struggle of who's going to be the Islamic State and who's going to have power in the region so then Saudi then backs Sunni militia and since the U.S is tied in with Saudi we continue to support them Russia is kind of tied to um to Assad so they support opposing in Syria, teams. right mm-hmm. yeah and so many consider this the the this conflict to actually be a cold war between um Saudi and and I, and Iran. Mm. And when people use the word Cold War, most right. people refer to the Soviet Union in America, which lasted, I believe, 40 years. Or really? it was yeah. a very extensive time. Yeah. And so we're almost seeing that type of activity where you have all of these countries who are stuck in the middle, like Iraq, like Syria, like Yemen. And they may in those three particular cases, they don't necessarily have the economic structure or other structures that can that can have the strength to remain unified. And so you're seeing in Syria, you have it you have two world powers kind of pulling that country apart and they just are really struggling to be able to take control. And yet they're in the middle. And so with Iraq, I think I have several friends who are in Iraq. I, I love Iraq, I think it's beautiful. Um, I normally go to the northern part of Iraq, northeast, and it does—we actually—the mountains that I look at are in Iran, so they border Iran. Um, I think when people think about Iraq, they often think of— like the desert and tumbleweeds. Right, right. But in in many parts, it actually looks like Palm Springs to me <laughs> where there's lots uh, of lush palm trees. Right, and, I've
0: seen some of these pictures. I'm like, this is not what I imagine <laughs> yeah. Iraq looking like.
1: Uh, there's a place actually in Iraq that has a sushi train that I love going to <laughs> and live music. You know, yeah, like it, yeah. Iraq is not everything we see on the news and, yeah. and I get that. But um, many of my friends who are there feel like they are stuck in the middle of almost a divorce, you know, where wow. you have this child who... Did not vote for divorce, but yet is just a ramification of two larger powers that just haven't been able to get along. And that is, I'm not denying the fact that Iraq has had its issues, you know, like definitely. But if you think about all of the times that Iraq has been at war and invasions, um, it's mainly been, well, from my understanding, a, a lot of it has been proxy, where they not, it's not necessarily them who is. Starting the war, it is other countries starting the war on their land and so I think it's been hard to watch this time. I have a a friend um his who lives in Iraq he's lived in Iraq the whole his whole life um and he, we kind of asked him you know how how he's feeling and he's my age he's in his thirties and so he experienced um um not Desert Storm, he experienced the Persian Gulf War, he experienced the invasion, and now this. And he still has memories of... He's
0: lived through all of he's that. He's lived through all of that. Unbelievable. It.
1: And um, he still has memories being a kid and having his parents say, you know, after this, that is when we can live in peace. But then <sighs> they get invaded in 2003. And then it's, okay, after this, then we can live in peace. And now it's it's this again. And he now has a two-year-old, two or three-year-old son and it's just like what he hoped for the future is now his son is going to have to go through it too and um it we can easily drop bombs and probably not think about it the next day but when we do when we drop bombs it takes years even decades to rebuild someone's life because all bombs are majority of bombs are not targeted they have mm-hmm. residual effects mm-hmm. you know they yeah, right. even if it's just knocking down a road yeah. Like that actually has a residual effect. Sanctions, same thing. The the sanctions in Iraq ended about a decade ago, but yet the residual effects on the local people are still there. There's yeah. hardly a banking system in Iraq because it was it crumbled during the time that we put sanctions on them. And sanctions we we put on Iraq to kind of control Saddam, but he's wealthy. So yes, it does impact him, but he was still able to throw parties. He was still able to you know live a live a normal life what sanctions actually do is they harm the people who are middle and lower class in the country and when you when you devastate a country in that way it actually it takes decades to to rebuild and when we when we devast not we when a country is devastated by sanctions or by bombs you're having to rebuild from ground up that is a that is a great platform for extremists to step in. Yeah, I was just
0: going to say, wouldn't that seem to only incite further feelings of revolution? I mean, just think about here in the United States, you know, it wasn't that long ago we had, you know, Occupy Wall Street happening on the streets. And I just imagine how much worse those sorts of protests would be as we are the 99% and we see that 1%, you know, I'm not saying that I believe that narrative, I'm just saying that was the narrative. If you're living in Iraq and... You know, as sanctions happen, you're being further debilitated and crippled while Saddam and his cronies are, you know, I guess sanctions in theory would work if you if you were a leader that had some sort of like moral pulse, right? Yeah. But if you don't have that, it seems like, you know, it's only going to further incite revolutionary attitude, you know, um revolutionary impulses it's such a it's such a mess um maybe would it be helpful um just to i did have somebody ask a question and you know we're we're talking about the, the sunni and Shia, and we could go really really deep on that is it and they had uh, a listener had asked is it helpful to think of them maybe as like like catholics and protestants once were in in europe now a lot of those actual violent tensions have subsided but that wasn't always the case um in you know from the Reformation onward is that a comparable yeah. analogy in some way to help people kind of wrap their minds around that?
1: Yeah, definitely, and that's actually probably the easiest way. I think just one distinction is there was never, it wasn't that violent of a break apart, right, to begin with. Um, yeah. to begin with, yeah. it was it was actually much more peaceful, and so yeah, it, it's differences in. And how they do worship, and all of that, sure they're very they're very different, and they have really distinctive qualities about the two, but there wasn't actually a a war or a uh, a blown out conflict that created that divide. I think it happened maybe a bit more organically um in how they each interpret their holy scriptures.
0: You talk about a friend of yours you know is through all of this, you know and I think about for me, when I I really became, I tried to become more aware of what was happening over there was because of a personal friend of mine, you know, so September 11th had happened when I was a freshman in college and my worldview bubble kind of burst that night because I was kind of in this sort of Rocky, I like to call it like my Rocky (laughs) four outlook on life, you know, everybody in the world loves America and you know, the, you know, everybody's just so excited that we're there all the time. And I'm not making us into the bad guys, but I'm just saying that night, I remember seeing on the news people expecting to see reports from all over the world of people mourning what happened. And that, that definitely was the case for a lot of places. But they also showed clips of places in the world where people, particularly in the Middle East, were burning American flags and yelling death to America. And I had a a good friend of mine in high school who his response to that was he he enlisted in the U.S. Army, did four tours in in Iraq. Um, And the impact that that experience had on him as a human being and the things that he saw there... You know when statistics were thrown out in the news it didn't do very much for me you know um the headlines didn't do much for me but when i i was able to s- picture real people and as a christian when i started picturing the real people it it convicted me of a blind spot i think i had which was to see i'll just be honest i'm not saying this is anybody else's perspective i'm saying this was my perspective that I felt was a default perspective I had as a, you know, just an evangelical Christian. Was Yes, everybody's made in the image of God. But <laughs> I don't see those people as being as much of image bearers as me until you, I think, I think the thing for me was hearing, was actually hearing the stories of people's suffering with real, names mm-hmm. real faces realizing realizing you know there were people sadly there were people like on september 11th for example there were people that that died in the you know whether it was in the plains or in the towers themselves or actually even in the pentagon you know they had never once set foot on Saudi soil right mm-hmm. And, and that, was the, that was the thing right that bin Laden was so upset about was when that, the first Persian Gulf War happened, bin Laden was so upset that it was the Americans that were on the you know had stepped foot on the Holy Land, right. And there was mm-hmm. this long history of you know the complexities that you've laid out. you know we were We were pro-Bin Laden when we needed bin Laden to defeat the Russians, and it was a proxy war happening there, and it was so, so, so messy so messy and you know my mind it was always just good guys bad guys good guys bad guys good guys bad guys but but these these were always like in the sort of world leaders right the governments versus governments but when you hear the stories of the people that all they're trying to do is like live a life like we are Mm -hmm. we just want to go to church raise our kids they want to go to mosque Mm-hmm. Raise their children, live a peaceful life, and here they are caught up in these crossfires of of war. It's 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 heartbreaking. Um,
1: and I think that's actually a good thing to to point out is is during the Gulf War was when, I mean, I I don't know if it's just because I was old enough to start watching the TV yeah. <laughs> at nighttime, but um, they put cameras on a lot of the planes during the yes. during the Persian War, and so that is when war became on our media it is when maybe it became entertainment if that's a stretch to say i don't know if it no, was entertaining I mean, but it was like you know the like- second
0: time we were there i remember they like they interrupted the because um if i remember correctly the the first what, what were we calling it you know it was like this is not the right term, but it was like swift and fast action. Whatever it was. With the point was we were gonna go in mm. the second time. It was gonna be quick. It was gonna be decisive. And I remember it happened at the beginning of NCAA March Madness tournament. <laughs> and it was like, We're cutting for March Madness to bring you the start of the war. Yeah. And it was like, Whoa, this is this is strange. This is yeah. strange. Sorry. But that I that notion of like we consume it as entertainment almost because we have so much Perhaps war related entertainment already. it's It's really hard to differentiate between the,
1: yeah. And I think it's interesting. i I heard someone um I'm blanking at who it was, but someone actually called the Persian war the video game war because we saw it from like this video game lens of now we're showing bombs, but yet you don't actually see the individual. Mm. They always just showed you this bird's eye view of what's going on, and then we label good guy and bad guy. And I think, that's actually something that has been unique for me as i've I've recently moved home to America after living abroad from for quite some time and um and just that concept I don't know if it's always existed or if, if I just noticed it, but that concept of there is a there is a definite good guy and bad guy, and um we are the good guys. There's no question about it. We would never actually think that we are the bad guys. we are always the good guy. and I just kind of have been thinking um I work in a, a camp called al Khul and it is in northeast Syria, and it is uh, home to a lot of ISIS women. And so I um, I have conversations with ISIS women, which is actually s- sometimes awkward to tell people. <laughs> um, cause the, yeah, how they, do those go with the blonde-haired, blue-eyed American? <laughs> yes, because they should be the bad guy, and I should be the good guy. Like, that's how it is. And it's almost this black and white, good and evil and it's from both this, of your perspectives, from right? From both of our perspectives. And it's this and I think that I maybe, I don't want to generalize, but I think maybe I have developed this culture of you are either for me or you are against me. You are either a good guy or you are a bad guy. And I just don't think that's how this world works. I think that with my ISIS women that I work with, I'm obviously not for ISIS, <laughs> but I can be for that. Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news. So I am, f- I am for them, but I'm not against them. Mm. And but just because I'm against them doesn't mean I support ISIS ideology. And I think it's this: um, when, when generally speaking, when we hear the words Iraq, we just hear all of the negative things. And they have Saddam, and Saddam was a bad guy. Therefore, Iraqis are bad guys. And it is that's yeah. not how the world works. And you know? have no idea who
0: like the Kurds were, who Saddam was. Trying to wipe off the face of the map. Exactly,
1: exactly. And I think that we have just created this, a video game image of the wars that are happening in the Middle East. And it is easiest for us to understand it, good good guy versus bad guy, evil versus good. But it's just so much more complex about that. And we're only seeing it from a bird's eye view. There are tons of families, just like you said, who are living day to day who want Peace. They they want their children to be happy. They want um, they want the same things we want. And and when we stop seeing each other as me versus you, me against you, and we actually can learn to come alongside people, it doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with them. Right. right. But we can come alongside people. We actually find that there is a lot more similar than there is different. Mm-hmm. And I think that is maybe something that we lack as Americans. Is just that ability to say, yeah, there is. There's bad things happening. We all know that, but that does not. Um, we can't associate Iraq and a bad person who may be living in Iraq with Iraqis. That's yeah. just not. That's just not fair. And it was interesting. Um, I was I was living in Bangladesh at the time, uh, but I had a, a Rohingya person who I don't even know how they don't have. Like the internet or or TV, so I don't know how they came about this, but um, he was Muslim, and um, and he just he asked me because I told him I was Christian. He had never met a Christian before, hmm. and uh, and he's like, "If you're a Christian, how are you how are you working here? We're, we're people of color," and he actually associated Christians with white supremacists. Wow! And um, because that for some reason, whatever news article he said said that a christian white supremacist did xyz and that was his association so he heard one news article and just made that assumption of all christians as we know like <laughs> nice. that's that's not how it exists but it comes down to being relational with people and really understanding that we can't just categorize one one person with you know who maybe we've seen on TV. And I think for me, it was interesting in, in November, I was in Syria and this was following, uh, well in October, November, I was there quite some time. Um, but this was following where the US decided to pull out um, of supporting the Kurds in the Northeast region of Syria and um, which was a very devastating thing for the, the thousands of Kurds that live in that region. And uh, so I was there about five days after um, Turkey started to to shoot some missiles. And um, so I was meeting with this family that was on the run. And it was awkward for me because I represent Jen Meyerson, but I also represent America. Right. And sometimes those are not equivalent. and mm. But yet you have to actually get to know Jen Meyerson, whereas you can assume who I am because I carry that American title. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's easier just to believe that I am that American title because right. it takes time to understand. It's a lot the harder Meyerson. work
0: to get to know Jen Myers.
1: And I, uh, I, I, I find it really interesting. This is just one of my random things that I do, but I like to go to places right after, um, it's, it's had a airstrike. Oh, well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so good it's to do in my free time. Yeah. Right. In your free time. <laughs> Grab a coffee. Yeah. But, um, but I just think it's, you know, airstrikes create this 50 foot crater in the earth and they destroy a building, but also the surrounding buildings and the roads. And it's, it's just a very devastating site. And um, so I went to a place where they had an airstrike and, um, and I, ironically, I I always find it fascinating to go to airstrikes where America dropped a bomb. Um, I just think that it's great to link that, personal you yeah. know impact yeah. of what it is and um it so this one it wasn't america it was it was someone else but to this kurdish family me as an american represented who they felt they were in this predicament because of america leaving and so i see this boy in this in this uh 50 foot crater and he's also just as curious as i am you know and we start chatting a little bit in in my my baby Arabic that I have Mm -hmm. and uh, he invites me over to his house and I'm very nervous to go over to his family's house because I don't know what they're going to think of me and I I never lie I don't tell them that I'm from Europe because I'm not and I think like if I want to start building a relationship with someone I'm not going to base it off of a lie I'm not going to have my first thing that I tell them so I normally tell everyone exactly what I'm doing and where I am from because I don't want to base relationships off of something that is false it's also
0: really dangerous too
1: it's right. dangerous. Yeah, of course it's dangerous. Hopefully but... your
0: mother's not listening to no. this part.
1: <laughs> um, or you change the subject. You know, yeah, I just think yeah. that I just think that being being honest is a great yeah. step to relationship. And so I go into this Kurdish family's home and they, they pat the top of their head. And it's this Kurdish phrase that um, I'm honored to the top of my head is kind wow. of the direct translation. And I remember sitting in there as they were offering me tea. Granted, these are refugees who... Their, their kid, they ran so quickly, they didn't have time to find their children's shoes. You know, normally their children's shoes is never where it's supposed to be. And so that's how fast that they were running out. And their city is was totally destroyed to what they know. They haven't actually been able to go back, but they believe that it's totally destroyed. And once it was destroyed, um, ISIS has risen up in that area and is believed to have taken over this, this village. And so it's too dangerous for them to go back. So here I am and I'm speaking with this family and um, and it was interesting because he said, thank you for coming. I know that this is the end of our days. And the what? Kurds actually believed that they don't know if they're going to survive this war as an ethno-religious group. Um, the Kurdish people have never really been in great relationship with uh, the Syrian government. They've never really been in great relationship in Turkey and also in in Iraq. And in Iraq, the Kurds were able to um, get autonomy and kind of have their own land. And that, that just wasn't the case in Syria. And so here he is saying that, I think that this might be the end of our days, meaning that they actually don't know if they're going to remain on earth. That's how I interpreted that phrase. And then he offered me tea. And I just thought, if this were to happen in Minneapolis, if if Syria were to, you know, bomb Minneapolis and a Syrian person came to my home, I would associate that bombing with that Syria person. I don't think I would let them in for tea out of fear. And it is amazing what fear can do when you let it control you. And I think that you can let fear control you without even really realizing it. I think it can be so subliminal. And even in Minneapolis, where we have a lot of people who um, are from Somalia, a lot of people who are wearing an abaya, um, I even I work a lot with with Muslims but sometimes you just you notice them and it was this bias of I'm actually noticing someone where I probably wouldn't if they if they looked like me and I think that we we feel bad for the Syrian refugees who are over there we feel bad for the people who are suffering over there Um, but in essence, they're on our own land, you know, like many have sought refuge all over the United States and they're in our own land. And I actually wonder how many people who are, who are white, who are evangelical, have friends with Muslims, Mm. who have friends with our neighbors, who we care so much about when they're over there. Do we actually care about them in our own backyard? Mm. And I think that you fear, um what you don't know and who you don't understand. And when you fear someone that you don't know or don't understand, that actually is a is a great ground for conflict. And you know, misunderstanding can actually lead to violence. Right. Misunder- yeah, yeah. <laughs> violence can then lead to war. And so I think that it is um it's so important for us to to not just care about over there, but actually how am I how am I getting to know my Muslim neighbors? And even in this time where it can just be so overwhelming, like, what can I do? There's not many people who are in my position who can fly over to Iraq and physically give food. But something that um, another refugee told me is is she, um, and this was down in Central America, her name was Gracia. And there was a time where I actually couldn't help. I couldn't help Gracia. I didn't have the funds and, and logistics and blah, blah, blah. And, um, but Gracia said, I care more about your solidarity than I do about your charity. And that just hit, that hit home because I think it's so, it's so easy to, oh, I want to fly over there and feed the children or I want to give money. They just want to be seen. They want to be known that they're valued. They want to know that just because you don't agree with them doesn't mean that you're, you're not for them. Right. Right. And so in this time where we have conflict in Iraq and Iran, I guarantee that there is Iraqis and Iranians living in our neighborhood. I remember when um, the shooting of the mosque in New Zealand happened, a friend and I went to our local mosque and we just met people outside. And I know some of them because I I have a few Muslim friends in the cities. Um, But all we said is, we are sorry and we love you. Mm -hmm. And that's it it doesn't mean that we are switching to Islam. (laughs) You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's just showing our solidarity because they are also humans. And I think, um, I think we kind of miss sight of that. We just see the politics. We just see we're, we're getting the bad guy, but we're kind of forgetting that human element of these are people just like us, both abroad and at home. And We don't, just because we're from America doesn't mean that our humanity is higher. Mm. It doesn't mean that our, um, that we get to choose who's good and who's bad, you know, because we are a world power. And so I think making that a personal thing will ultimately lead to how we vote, to how we treat our neighbors. If we kind of have that conviction of, I want to care for my neighbor, no matter who they are. Hmm. And I want to get to know them so that I can better understand who they are.
0: Yeah, it's when we get the—it's like a conflict of of narratives, of narratives that we subordinate our lives under and within. And it's, I think one of the things that's—it's difficult to do—is as Americans in we have a sort of civil religion, right? God and country together. Um, But there are a lot of ways in which our sort of God and country attitude actually wouldn't be reflective of what we say is like a biblical perspective Mm -hmm. on people and the world. And I think I, you know, a a couple of things I reflect on my own life, which helped me become aware of this in subtle ways as you're talking. I was reminded, you know, I grew up in the Detroit area. And um, a lot of Muslim people in the Detroit area, too, like Dearborn in particular, was called Little mm. Baghdad. And uh, I, I played sports with uh, guys that were well, Muslims, grew up in Muslim families, you know. And so, and in a lot of ways, I think my parents preferred me hanging out with them versus maybe kids that were just we might just say on the, the secularized. Right, there's a share. There were there actually some shared values there. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's differences in the narratives that we believe about God and the way the world work, the way the world should work, and who Jesus is and things like that. There's obviously differences there, but that those experiences were helpful so that when I actually, you know, in university, I'm at the Dearborn campus for the University of Michigan, and it's I would just say anecdotally, it seemed like it had to have been at least twenty five percent you know, Middle Eastern Muslim, so I'm not talking about um, people from Indonesia, but, you know, high Arabic um, population there. And after September 11th happened, um, it was an opportunity for a lot of conversations with people on campus. And those were really important conversations. And so uh, the idea that maybe one thing we can do is to actually get to know the people. You know, it's a silly little thing, but there's a there's a pharmacist. You know, we get justice. Our oldest sons um, go to the pharmacy there on Lexington. You know, mm-hmm. out in. Anyways, I won't give the exact location, but the pharmacist, the pharmacist there is a, a is a Muslim Muslim gal, and every time I go in. To get his uh prescription she just goes i love that name justice mm. right that's an important name like and the, and there's like an agreement there you know um of some shared values that we we don't get to we don't get to see when we leave people as headlines have you always have you always had that perspective i'm curious like maybe you could take us back i'd like to maybe go through a few of your stints here in in the middle east and i'd be curious to see how maybe one i want to hear some more stories of the people there in places like iraq and syria um but i'm also curious about how your own perspective has changed and how have has there been glimmers of hope mm-hmm. in your repeated times there so so when was the first time like when was the first time you were in a in Iraq or or Syria or you know Lebanon or I don't know mm-hmm. it, it's some somewhere in the Middle East that we are we're seeing often in the headlines.
1: Yeah, well, for my degree, which is in international development, I had to do both practicum and an internship, and I minored in Arabic, and so I had to go to an Arabic-speaking nation. And there was an opportunity for me to go to Beirut. I was actually trying to think of the year, but it was the year you got married. So what year's that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, I'm in trouble. I uh, think 13, 2007? No, no, no. Earlier. Uh, six, what, year, what year is it right now? Two, 2020. It'll be 14 years this year. 2006. Okay, six. Yeah. There you
1: go. Because I remember I got home like three days before your wedding. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was the first trip that I took to Beirut. And at this time, I mean, 2006, this is pre Arab spring. Um, yeah. there was definitely still conflict between Beirut and Israel, which, you know, kind of still exists, but it wasn't, it wasn't super bad. Um, but I was, I was, uh, there kind of working with a church, but then I also worked with Palestinian refugees, which was very interesting. Um, and also political, which we won't go into here, yeah. but, um, and I worked with a OBGYN there. And I was always really interested in health. And so that was super, super fascinating for me. So for my internship, uh, which happened that same year in December of 2006, I decided to, um, she had moved because the tensions between Israel and Lebanon kind of uh, expanded and it just wasn't safe for her to live there. She was a French woman. And so she actually thought about going to Damascus because Damascus and Syria, Damascus and Aleppo were both thriving cities at that time wow. and, um, and tourist destinations. Yes. And yes. so I was really excited to be able to go to Syria. And at that time I'm like, Oh, that's not a hard enough country to go to. Um, oh and that was obviously right. pre-war. So we, uh, she ended up moving down to, um, Egypt. And so I did my internship in Egypt and this is also still before e- Egypt started, the political started to, f- to fall apart, but it was during Darfur. In northern Gosh. Sudan, and so we um, started helping the the um, people of Darfur in in health capacity. And I remember, um, I was younger, and I was pretty much born in the pew, and so I had this very knowledge based uh, idea of Christianity and who God was. I knew every answer. If you are in need, well, God is your provider. If you are um, not feeling safe, Here's he is your protector. Yeah. You know, like I yeah. knew every, I knew every uh, phrase, Christianese phrase to respond, um, but I didn't have wisdom and conviction when it doesn't actually appear to look like what God says it should look like. Yeah, and so I was, you know, working with Darfur in a genocide. Um, I saw a lot of death, and it was one of those very overwhelming things. Both as a young person. But then also how, how is what I say in church, How, if that's truly truth, it should actually be truth here. <laughs> it can't yeah. just be truth in one place. And, right. and so what does that look like here? And it was this wrestle with my faith of, I don't, I don't get this. You know how why isn't how this is, just working? can I just this say this working? verse
0: and then everybody gets better. There's more yeah. genocide, and... and
1: doesn't that make you feel better when I say that God is your provider? Yeah. And it's like, no, that actually doesn't. That's not enough for for these people. And um, so it was just a time where I really had to establish um, establish my faith. And I think two convictions over the course of my humanitarian career that I have to keep instilling. But, I think that they've really um they've been monumental in in who I am and my ability to do my job. But one of them is the concept of my purpose and my sole purpose is to be obedient to God. That's it. There's nothing else. granted, i I used to work more in the health sector. So some of that obedience was helping people survive and living. But that's not my that's not my job. That's that's a linear um, reaction to a vertical mm-hmm, obedience, mm-hmm. and that really helped me because that meant that every loss that I had was not actually my responsibility. That was on God. But then every person that I saved was also not my win because that's on God. If my mm. sole purpose in life is to be obedient, then that is it. Wow. And and so having that. Mentality really helped me th- through some of the inhumaneness that is part of humanity and and just some of the things that i've seen I've now worked in in two genocides and several wars you know like it is it is shocking what humans can do to other humans, and just the suffering can be so overwhelming and I think that leads me to my second conviction of I remember in central african <coughs> I remember I was working on a project in Central African Republic, and this is when I was with the UN, and um, I I was dumbfounded at the inhumaneness of humanity. I was
0: I was just like just like think of that statement the in you know it's like the inhumanity inhumanity inhumanity
1: right? yeah and um, and it was just it was just viciousness and I couldn't my brain couldn't actually conceptualize what had, what I had just seen, you know, it's just like, I don't understand how this is part of our world. And then I I really started to realize it's because it's not part of our world. It is called inhumane because mm. it's not human. Mm. And I had to, in my internal self, and I actually don't know if this is theologically correct, <laughs> but in myself, I've really had to divide the human and evil. Yeah. And I actually think that yes, human did that action with the influence of evil. And and for me, if I would, I started to I started to hate humans. I especially I worked in um, gender-based violence, and uh, which you know you, you that's a very hard topic. And oh. and oftentimes what I was and I was in women's health as well, and so I would often see women be abused by men, and it almost made me really angry at men. But then I'm like, with no, cause.
0: <laughs> with good cause. Too. But it,
1: but it's actually evil that I should be mad at, and if I. I came a point where if I couldn't distinguish between evil and human, I would have lost hope in humanity because I would have just started hating humans yeah, for yeah. how they could do these things. Yeah. And so I think that God came on earth not to defeat humans. He came to defeat evil. And so therefore, if I can see evil for evil and human for human, then I know what I'm actually fighting. Wow! And that is evil and it's totally shifted my, my prayer life. It shifted the fact that I can work with ISIS women because I do not hate them. I love them. I hate evil.
0: Yeah. And the
1: more that I see what these children go through and, um, you know, in, in ISIS camp in particular, uh, it's not ISIS camp, it's called Al-Hol camp, but I call it ISIS camp. I, um, I, in November, I walked into a tent of a woman who was from Canada. And uh, there's, there's about 10,000 women who an are ice, from...
0: An ice, a, w- a woman that's a member of ISIS from Canada.
1: These are alleged from ISIS, okay. but there's yeah, yeah, yes, there's yes. about ten thousand uh, foreign women and children who are living in what we call an annex part of this Al Hol camp, hmm. and they are assumed to be ISIS because okay. if they were caught right. in an ISIS raid, if they're Arab, like you don't know what side they're on. If right. they're if they're white, chances are they probably are there because of ISIS. And so, um, but this woman did not necessarily believe in the ideology. She um, she more had the story of she was going to, getting her university degree in the University of Vancouver, um, or her undergrad, sorry, and she met a guy and got married. He wanted to be, live in community with other Muslims, and so she wasn't anything. She didn't claim to be a, a religion at that time, and so they moved over to Aleppo, yeah. and then he starts leaving at night. She stopped asking where he was going, and now here she is, and she has—I um, can't remember—it's—it's it's in between like seven or nine children, which is quite common for for women in the, in this area. And um, she she showed me a photo of her eight-year-old boy, and this is kind of graphic, but her eight-year-old boy was actually holding a, a human head, and um, and she said, "This is this is what they teach my son." This is like ISIS ideology for boys happens when you're really young, like ISIS school, ISIS training. And so here it is, and it was so easy to hate ISIS, to hate these men. But yet I'm like, no, my, my, my fight is not against these men because I do not think that creating peace is going to happen by being violent. That's my personal opinion. I just don't think that's the way. I think fighting evil um, and loving the human behind it, like that's actually what I think is going to create peace. And so it was, but that distinction of my purpose in life is to be obedient. And part of my obedience is to fight evil. I think that is what has allowed me to be sus- to sustain in this job or else I probably would have gotten overwhelmed a long time ago.
0: I going to throw in something because I think maybe this is hopefully helpful to people that have been Listening to this podcast for a while, and one of the reasons why, (laughs) one of the reasons why, like, one, I wanted to kind of stop in the middle of this series on the problem of evil to actually talk about the realities of people's experiences of evil and suffering, but two, to actually see how what we believe about those things actually affects how we live in the world, and for you to be able to make that differentiation to be able to see something that is, and you know, like. Like you're in the real life. <laughs> this is gonna sound pejorative to myself, but you you're in the real world, and you know much of what I'm doing is in the world of like like ideas, right? And so for you, you're not necessarily you're the way you've come about this has been. I've never been in trying to bring relief to a place that's experienced experienced genocide, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I've had my own experiences of suffering, but it's not been as gratuitous as that we can put it like that that there's the sort of the emotional weight of when we see human suffering when we experience human suffering and then there's like the, the, the trying to make sense of it to try to give it a story and then there's a story that informs the way we live in the world you've brought up something that's actually you know it was like yeah, people have been listening hopefully catch it. It's, it there is a classical christian notion that evil is simply it's the privation of the good right that evil isn't is the movement away from the from the good right and that actually god has made humanity good you know and, and that's that's not to say it's not denies that humans are also sinful either mm-hmm. right And these are these like twin tensions we hold to as Christians because if we move too far on the one side and we go, humans are evil, then what you said, you said like I would become totally and utterly hopeless, Mm -hmm. right? There's nothing I can do about it. And that's the weight sometimes, I'll be honest, that's the weight sometimes I feel when I just hear these stories. It's it is a weight of hopelessness, you know, it's a weight of power. People are just like this, right? They're just like this. And it has to be a little bit of, I think of even, you know, I think of even the story of Noah, right? Is, I mean, when we step back and try to get out of the Sunday school lens of reading that story, mm-hmm. you just think, well, that yeah, that would kind of make sense. Let's just wipe, let's just start over. Let's yeah. just start from scratch. But the, like, redemptive arc of the scriptures to see christ god in the flesh step into our humanity and in that humanity to experience the full weight of suffering as somehow a way of alleviating the suffering of the world like that narrative provides me with hope and hopefully it sounds like it does for you too to go into these places and go this like this doesn't have to be the end of the story right this Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be the end of the story did you um you know so your your younger experiences some 14 15 years ago seeing this stuff really for the first time was it hard was it hard to actually get through that feeling of like i don't know if i can do anything about this and in subsequent trips and subsequent stays and 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 um in your time um in these war-torn places what's What has changed in you? Has there ever been a point where you really got to the rock bottom? You're like, I'm done with this. Like, how do you keep going back? How do you, what glimmers of hope have you seen? Obviously you've talked about, I mean, you brought up Aleppo and like things have got worse Mm. since your first time there. How do you not walk away from that and go, I was in Aleppo when you could go to the mall. Yeah. Right. And now I remember you um you posted to your your Instagram when you were there um was that 6 months ago?
1: I think in May.
0: In May. Uh the video of the streets and like I'm just trying to I can't even picture the devastation. Like you said like the one one bit of infrastructure I mean not far from where we're recording this right now. In 2008, the 35W bridge collapsed. Mm-hmm. And that was like, I don't want to minimize it because people actually died that day. Mm-hmm. And then the aftermath of like, well, we can't get into the city. This is the way we get into the city. That, And it was one bridge, mm-hmm. right? And I'm seeing these scenes from Aleppo and it's like the devastation. I can't even compute it. Mm-hmm. Things seem to be getting worse there, and yet you keep going back. Yeah, you know? and not just you. This like you're one person that represents lots of people that are doing what you're doing as well, and maybe probably not enough. What glimmers of hope have you seen there, which make you go, "I oh, don't know, this is worth it." Like we're doing something. We're the, I I can keep doing this. I can keep being obedient because at some point. I admire the determination. Like I got to be obedient to God, but don't occasionally you have to see a few wins? Sometimes.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of ironic that you're saying it this week because I think um, as soon as this whole thing with Iraq happened, I actually texted my boss and I'm like, I think I'm going to quit and save the whales. They don't shoot at us. <laughs> <laughs> there's less politics involved. You know, yeah. like it's still doing the world good. Um, so there's definitely times We're not drone I get... <laughs> striking whales <laughs> yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Um. So who knows? Maybe further in my life. Okay. Um, but I think back, that was a loaded question. So I think just yeah. f- rewinding a little bit, um, so I think I would have gotten really overwhelmed if I would have continued going into these places with the concept that I am, I am going to be, I am the one who's going to be helping them. Kind of this like white savior mentality. Right. right. And, um, and also I think we it's a good phrase, it's truth, it's in the Bible, but I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Give this yeah. perspective. Actually, I actually don't
0: know if that is in the Bible, but...
1: <laughs> oh, really? Like, is that, okay, well... It might
0: just be one of those Christian The way that we, that we interpret yes, it, yes, interpret, yes of yeah, being yeah, yeah. the hands
1: and feet of Jesus. Yes. But just that phrase of I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus yeah. means that I am, I am doing something. Right. And what I realized is that oftentimes refugees know their own solution. Hmm. They know what's best for them. They know what they want. And they don't necessarily need someone going in and doing it for them, that we are this outside person who has it all together. What they need is they need someone to come along and lift up their arms and and just give them a little assistance, you know, to to live their life. And I so as soon as I started transitioning my posture of being, I am here to save you and more of, okay, you're going through a tough patch. How? What do you need? what is going to help you in your future because it's it's not going to be what i think i need you know you're
0: really partnering with local heroes it's partnering heroes with there. them
1: yeah and they are the heroes it's yeah. not me at all yeah. they're the ones who are so resilient i actually don't know if i have the 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 ability the capacity to have that much resilience to be able to rebuild and have it be destroyed so who are and some rebuild local heroes, and have then? it be destroyed so some of the local heroes i think um, and, and this is going back to that video that you had mentioned, um, is uh is Aida is her name and Aida and Amar, and they um she's young and she had um three kids at the time and this was actually outside of Damascus and it was in a city called Harasta. Now Harasta is part of Eastern Ghouta. Um, it is very well known in the war because it was one of the areas that America in particular, um did an airstrike, I believe it was in 2017 in December. And so um, they were besieged. It was a besieged city and um, airstrikes happened 2000, yeah, in 2017. And in March, April of that year, um, it was liberated. And, um, but as soon as the airstrike started to happen is when they decided that they wanted to leave. And I remember sitting with Aida and I'm just like, why, you you had years to leave, like, why did you choose now? And she told me, she's like, if I just had one wall, this is my home. Like, mm. this is where all my family is. This is where my community is. This is where my memories are. Like, if you actually kind of think about, you know, your own life, you probably have a place like that as well. And um, and so then they, they tried to leave, but when they were running uh, frantically, she ended up Uh, losing her kids. She lost them in the chaos and she couldn't find them. And I remember looking at her as she's retelling from a mother's perspective of having no idea where her kids are and trying to search for them. And so she's like, I can't leave the city without my children. And uh, during one of the strikes, her husband, she doesn't know exactly what happened, but her husband was hit and he actually lost his leg. And so she knew to take off her head covering and cover his leg and pull him underneath an abandoned building. And then she continued to search for her children. And she found that a neighbor had taken her kids and had hid them in a basement. And so then she, you know, moved her husband and they all hid there um, for quite some time and then just realized, like, they don't, they actually can't leave now. Like, they are stuck until it was liberated. So once it was liberated, um... Preemptive Law was able to, within weeks, bring in an ambulance and do emergency health care. That ambulance turned into what we call a hospitainer, which is the back of a semi-truck type thing. And in August of August or September of 2018, Aida had a feeling that she was pregnant. And um, so she goes into our hospitainer. She, she she never really went into the hospital for her other children. And then finds out that she's not only pregnant, but she's having four babies. Oh, <laughs> and goodness. She was both like scared and nervous. And You'd be
0: scared if you were wealthy in the best and conditions. The conditions. Yeah, totally.
1: And so I, uh, she, she delivered in the spring of 2019, and I was there about three, four days after. And I remember walking into this this neighborhood of Harasta, and it literally feels that if you sneeze, a building is going to collapse and there's hardly anyone here the eastern guta region was about 400,000 now there's about 30,000 who live here and they are they are just living in these apartments if they have three walls so a lot of them don't even have four the the windows are broken through and so you you walk down the street and there's still rubble all in the street and this is back in april it's it's much cleaner now but um there's still rubble all over the street and um and it's it's quite devastating cuz there's still finding people under the rubble. Um, Still. Still. Well, not still. This was back in April, during this time. Right. And so, um, and not all streets have been cleaned because it's very dangerous to walk over rubble because there could be unexplosives there. And so even just to get from the clinic to her house took me, a well-bodied person, a well-able person, it took me like 30 minutes. I can't imagine walking to our clinic when she's caring for her babies. And so I just remember walking through, and this was spring, and so uh, there was extra rain this year as well in, in Syria, in this region. And so all of these poppies were were coming up. And most of their stone is made out of out of sand, so it's this really mute type color. And then to have these rich, red, vibrant poppy seeds, it was almost like uh, destruction in life, the dichotomy of mm. that in full view. And pain and possibility in full view. And so you're walking down and I go over to Aida's house and here I am holding these these four babies, which we're all sleeping. That's another miracle in itself. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, but just seeing hope in the midst of destruction and life in the midst of destruction. And they are now, her husband, we were able to get him a prosthetic leg. And so now he can walk and he works at our clinic now. And they are just sticking with it and for them it's a win because they are able to um, feed their family now that they have a job. They are able to stay home, which was her dream. Um, And so seeing her and seeing just that new life in the midst of destruction is always super, super hopeful for me. I think another story is up in Aleppo and her name is Fatma and she is amazing woman. She has eight children, four of whom have disabilities. And her husband was shot in the head during the war and um, is bedridden, so he's he's can't take care of their family. So now she is doesn't have any education, and she is now the main caregiver for her family, uh, again, four of which who just need a little extra care. And so we did a project where we would teach them how to do mushrooms. A lot of their fields were burned, and so they were farmers originally, but now it's it takes a lot for burnt land to get nutrients right, right. to grow. It it actually takes uh, quite a lot of seasons to be able to bring that nutrients back into the ground. And so she needed income. She needed some way to take care of her family. And so we helped her um, with mushrooms. And mushrooms is something that you can grow within a very small space. So she actually uses kind of a pantry type room to hang her mushrooms and we, we don't just give her seeds and say, good luck. Like we actually take them through a process of training them on how to do mushrooms. Cause it is new. This certain type, it's called an oyster mushroom and it has protein. So yeah. they used to be sheep farmers. So we wanted to also make sure that they were giving protein back to the community. Um, and so she, she was like in the front of the class. She was that one who always raised her hand, who asked so many questions and it was just so cool being with her and in four of her kids and they uh two of her kids have down syndrome and they both said to me with proud faces like oh I'm a mushroom farmer too <laughs> oh, and it's so just sweet. something that she can do in her own home and she's rebuilding her life despite her circumstances this is the resilience and the beauty of Syrian people they they just need a little bit of support they are not these needy people who can't survive without us, right. you know, yeah. coming in and saving the day. No, they—they they know what's best for them and their families. They just need someone to hold up their arms, and and help them restart and rebuild their lives.
0: So, what's some ways that people here in the U.S. if they're they're not going to be necessarily because um, not. The reality is, it's true. Not everybody is called to do what, what you're doing. Others, at preemptive love. There's other NGOs that are in the region too. Not everybody's called to, to be there on the ground, but there. But people may be listening to this and they're going, "All right, like I, I do want to help. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want to help, and maybe even like I'll be honest. I feel." I feel as an American, as a person living here, pays my taxes, I, f- I do feel a sense of culpability in creating the situation. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's all on us. It's way too complex for that, mm-hmm. right? But there is a culpability. Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was a brilliant you know, Jewish theologian... I remember seeing an interview with him. this was a recording of an interview and it uh, he was talking about the realization that hit him the weight this was when Vietnam was happening and you know Vietnam was really the first time war became t v mm-hmm. right and a lot of people point to when they actually started to show clips from what was happening that that might have been one of the turning points in American attitudes against against vietnam i'm not trying to make this political but he 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 had confessed to his own culpability in creating the situation there's a degree in which like i feel you feel the sense of responsibility in it right Mm -hmm. what are some ways that people people can respond you know whether it's like we can respond to what's already happening. Are there any insights like, you know, to how can we keep this from continuing? Yeah. You know, I, I just, I scratch my head and I go, how does the cycle, how does the cycle ever stop? And then how do we not just do the cleanup after the fact? It's like, you know, the thing that goes through my head when I you come back and you, you share these stories and the thing I start going right through my head all the time is like, well, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Mm-hmm. And you guys are dump, dumping out tons of you know, <laughs> of cure. And I'm like, how could, you know, I'm not saying you have an answer for this, but it's the, the question that runs through my head, like, what can we do to prevent this stuff? Mm-hmm from continuing to happen. And then, you know, maybe we do all in our power to do that and stuff like this still happens. And so we we, we come with the healing bomb, and we we partner with the local heroes there to at least bring what perhaps they have lost that we actually have been blessed with, right? We've been blessed with some sort of means to be able to provide a prosthetic leg or to show someone how to grow mushrooms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, what What can we do about it?
1: Yeah, I think first, and I th- I know this is a bit cliche and it's probably overlooked, but if if we truly aren't fighting against humans, if we truly are fighting against evil, that is something that our politics is actually not involved in. It is mm-hmm. what Christians are involved in. Yeah, And so therefore, we think that sometimes our fight, it's not us, like if you're not in the military or if you're not part of politics, you don't have a part to play, but if if it's truly a a fight against evil, we do have a part to play. Yeah. And I think that it is a remembering that and then praying as if it is our own child, as if it is our own sister, as if it is our own land. And I remember in, um, uh, I think I was near Damascus, but I, I met this small 10 year old boy named Muhammad and he was playing basketball and I just went up and I chatted with him and, um, and he was kind and let, yet this leader, but kind of a quiet so he, leader. You sent us a picture I think of him. I sent you a yes, photo of him because yes. he reminded me so much of justice. Yeah,
0: Carrie sent me that picture and, and I lost it. <laughs> um,
1: and it was just Muhammad never chose to be born into a country of war, much less than justice chose to be born in a country of peace. Like they actually didn't choose. And yet Muhammad, because of the length of this war, he's probably only known a couple years of peace. He actually doesn't really have, I haven't asked him, but I'm assuming that he probably as a young child doesn't have a recul- uh, an understanding of what peace even looks like. And so for Muhammad, it is, I want to pray for him as if he is my own nephew. You know, I want to fight for him as if he is my own nephew. And it's almost kind of, Getting our getting our sights off of the big perspective, getting our sights away from the video game, you know, yeah. uh, footage that we get of bombs dropping, and actually seeing the one, yeah. and knowing that there's actually a one who probably fits a member of your family, who probably fits a neighbor, and fighting evil on their behalf, because ultimately that's who we're fighting. Yeah. And so if we actually, I I firmly believe that if we had a community of Christians who prayed against evil the way we would if it was our reality, mm. I think things would actually be different. And so that is something that I think is easy to do yeah. and is something that... Everybody can do that. Everyone can do it. Everybody and it do doesn't it. rely on politicians. Yes. You know, that actually relies on us. I think another thing that we can do is, and we mentioned this before, is just get to know our neighbors. And because I I would bet... If you got to know your neighbors, your Muslim neighbors, your, your, if I can say it, your homosexual neighbors, you know, if, yeah. if you actually got to know them for them and kind of not necessarily agree with them, but just get to know who they are, I think it might actually impact how we view conflicts around the world. It might actually impact how we vote. It might actually change our perspective of of what we should fear. Because if you know Muslims the way I know Muslims, if if something were truly happening to me and I was in need of help, I would call my family first, but then I'm going to call Hawar in Iraq because yeah. he is such a genuine, kind friend. He would do anything for me. Uh. And I think because of that, whenever I see a Muslim, I don't fear Muslims. I assume they're all like Hawar. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so I think that if we can... If we can get to know our neighbors and break down that level of of fear, it's really going to open our eyes to what's actually going on and may change some other things within us of maybe how we see a certain situation or or that. So I think that is the second thing that we, we can all do. And the third thing, and I'm going to reemphasize this, is like learn about, it's okay to learn about this and it's okay to struggle through it. It's very complex, but just instead of instead of saying this is too overwhelming, I think it's really important for people to understand the way we vote has residual effects on individuals. so our our words and our actions, or the lack thereof, impact humanity. And so if we choose not to engage in understanding the situation, our politics will. And so it's like, I want to put a little bit of pressure because it is part of our responsibility to understand what's going on. Cause in the foreseeable future, our politics are going to be a part of the Middle East in the foreseeable future. Right, right, and if we're right. Christians, it, you know, our Christianity has started in the Middle East right. and, and depending on how you interpret revelations, you know, right. it, there's going to be a piece of it in the Middle East as well. And so I think that would be the third piece as well is just leaning into that complexity of what is the Middle East.
0: Thanks Jen. It's been a blast to do. Um, I'm hopeful that uh people hearing this will one like maybe be encouraged that it's worth getting educated about what's happening here that they, they'd feel a sense of hopefulness is there um is there particular ways that people listening to this can support what you're doing are there particular ways they could you know they go well Jen can we somehow follow the work that you're doing mm-hmm. in the world do you have any Ways that people could get connected?
1: Yep. Well, I work currently for Preemptive Love, and we, we operate all over the world, but particularly in the Middle East. It mm-hmm. actually was launched out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and so something that I, I, you know, I've worked for many organizations and the UN yeah, and, yeah. and whatnot, but something that stood out to me about this organization is they spend a lot of time listening to the one and they don't make blanket decisions of we're going to feed 5000 people they they say how how can we feed this one person well and maintain dignity and um, and so i think that they i mean yes i'm biased i work for them right. but i think they're actually a really honorable charity yeah. uh, you know charitable giving yeah. because the money is given with with the one person in mind instead of you know, a, a mass full of people.
0: Right. Which is harder to sell when you're going, well, what's your impact as Americans? Yes. We like to hear big numbers and stuff. Totally. But that yeah. can often Yeah. betray the reality of, well, the long-term multi-generational sort of change happening in one family, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. which one's better or worse? That's like a, it's a value judgment Yeah, there, right?
1: But it even goes back to Fatima. I mean, that project was agriculture. It was for people of land. She couldn't do that with her current circumstances. And so having to adjust our programs to actually match her and what she needs in her life is something that I really value about our organization. So I think following that, we also, um, we have a phenomenal team who is based in Iraq, who writes blogs. And um, it's always fun because the members of our team... Are very diverse, like diverse in religion, diverse in political party. Um, so it's always interesting because they all have to edit each other's blogs. <laughs> and uh, that's
0: good. That's probably a really I, good practice.
1: Yeah, I think it's just a great way. And I think it's also an example of how we can be for someone, but not, um, you know, not, uh, not support their right, views. right, right. And so I think that blog is also very educational. And so again, that's found on the Preemptive Love website. Oh, that's awesome.
0: Thanks, Jen. This is a blast. Um, these are heavy subjects, but I'm so thankful for what you're, the work that you're doing and that you get to come back and encourage um, the rest of us to maybe sometimes get our head out of the sand, mm-hmm. right? To be aware of what's happening in the world and um, and to to call us to be be hopeful that God is actually working in the world. That those that beautiful picture. I remember the, the seeing the video that you you shared with us of the the flowers somehow emerging out of the, this rubble. is like doesn't make it all go away. Doesn't make all the bad stuff go away, but gives you a little glimmer of something to to, to keep. And fighting's not the right word <laughs> because this is it's the fighting that's bras here. But you do internally have to fight they keep to keep hopeful about about somehow god reconciling all things right thank you jen thank you this episode is brought to you by the deep talks patreon community it's people like paul r luke h People like you guys who are making this podcast possible, I'm so thankful for your support and your encouragement. Welcome to new member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, Nathan H. Thank you for joining. Thank you for supporting this work that I am doing. If you want to support this podcast, that's one of the best ways you can do it is by becoming a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. For as little as $2 a month, you can provide significant support to this podcast. If everybody who listened did that, it would go a really, really long ways there's other tiers of support and at those tiers there's different rewards fun perks for for people as a thank you for um, seeing value in this work that i am doing so thank you to you guys another way you can support is just by leaving a review on apple Podcasts, by subscribing there subscribing wherever you listen to your podcast at but especially if you leave a review on apple Podcasts, that goes a long ways because it's the number one place people are going to search for podcasts so Thank you to those, uh, those of you that have left some encouraging feedback on how much this podcast is helpful helping you. And I, I, I have every intention of continuing to be of help um, as much as I can to you guys on your journey of that's just theology, but this is really a journey, a journey with God. And uh, I'm just so thankful for whatever part I can play in that. Thank you guys for listening in. Uh, we're going to continue on with our... Um, problem of evil series in a little bit and we've also got some other guests coming up including at the end of the month justin brierly justin brierly from the uk justin is host hosts a wonderful program it's actually played influence in in my life called unbelievable can't wait to have justin on the program and uh, maybe some of you guys are already familiar with justin's work Finally, I'd encourage you to support Preemptive Love. Um, they're not a sponsor of today's episode or anything, and Jen is really just speaking as an individual person. She wasn't coming here on behalf of, of Preemptive Love, but I, I can't think of a better organization in this time in what's going on in the world to support and to uh, give my wife and I are supporters of Preemptive Love, and I'd encourage you to check them out too as well. Thank you all, and until next time, we'll talk again soon.